Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, the, uh, this creation account, in fact, I would even say Genesis 1 and 2 and, and even moving forward, it has come under so much of attack over the um, past years. You know, so much so that people would look at the clear uh, writing of Scripture and they would still deny that God actually brought it all about in six days. And they would talk about things like evolution and things like that, but even more than that, they would even go so much as to say that even people like Adam and Eve, they were not actual persons. You know, God was just using illustrations. Uh, it was just an analogy that what God was using, but really what's important is just the, the big idea or the big message, but you know, those, these things didn't actually happen. In fact, some would even go so much as to say that there were all these homo sapiens and Adam and Eve was one of them who was kind of selected out. And then they bore the mark and the image of God and so on and so forth. And there's so many ways in which you can, um, you know, speak to people and point, just point them to Scripture and say, this is what Scripture says, and I don't know where you're getting what you're getting from. But that, that is the reality of things where people try and deny even the, the, the factuality of Scripture, where many of the liberal scholars too would point to it and say, oh, the most important thing is not, not all the facts that are seen, even from Genesis 1 through 11, is just all the implications that come out of it, and perhaps even some of the theology that comes out of it. But you know, one of the unique things about Christianity is that history is very, very important. History is very important for the Bible. And Christianity is, is the only religion that is so unique, whereas you know, many other religions, uh, their so-called propositions, a lot of them are just abstract concepts that are just sort of talked about. But really for Christianity, what Christianity does is it pushes you back to history and what actually happened. And through what actually happened, we understand God and who he is and what he has done. I mean, if you think of um, 1 Corinthians 15, where you know, Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, if it is not a historical account, then our faith is in vain, and we are to be the most pitied of all people. Meaning that if that... Christ didn't actually raise from the dead, if it was not a historical fact, then our, the very basis of our belief system would fall apart. You know, other parts of Scripture where God continues to remind Israel of how he delivered Israel out of Egypt. Remember, I did this for you. Remember, I did this and I did that. These are historical things that actually happened. They're not just fables, they're not just stories, but it actually happened. 
And so also we see this creation account. It is not just a nice story of, oh, in the beginning this happened, da, 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 and then it just goes on like any other story. It's not just a story, but it actually happened. That there was nothingness at first. Absolutely nothing. And the only being that was present at the time was the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he spoke, and he spoke into being. He commanded nothingness to be, and even nothingness obeys him. And that is a historical fact. And everything that we see around us is as a result of what God created in those six days. And here we come to the end of creation week. If you remember, you know, God created the world. He separated the waters, uh, you know, made the expanse in between. Uh, and then uh, he separated the waters and the land. And there was vegetation. Then he filled the skies with the sun, moon, and the stars, filled the seas with the creatures, filled the skies with flying creatures, and then the land with land animals. And last week we even saw that he uh, created mankind. And mankind was unique in that he was stamped with the image of God. Male and female, they were stamped with the image of God, the ability to reflect God's character. And they were to reflect God's character to the rest of creation, and they were to exercise dominion and rule over the rest of creation and take care of creation so that this good creation, this very good creation as God called it, would be maintained uh, just like God wanted by mankind um, as his representative. And now here we come to the end of creation week, and this is day seven. And really, this, this day is very unique from all the other days. Because remember, days one, two, three corresponds to day four, five, and six, right? Because days one, two, three is when God is forming everything. And days four, five, and six, he correspondingly starts filling that void. But when you come to day seven, there's none of that happening. There's no God speaking per se. There's no God creating per se. Uh, just so many things about this day are so different. It's very distinct from the rest of the days. In fact, you'll see that God actually blesses the very day and uh, makes it holy. So it's a, in a very real sense, even as you follow the literary structure, uh, this day is very unique. And even as you trace uh, God making everything, there's a progression, there's a, there's a complexity of things that are being made, and the complexity of life even, and then it culminates on this seventh day. So this seventh day is actually a very important day. Now, by way of outline, I, I just want to, um, I've just got three points, and uh, they'll be short points. And, and at the end of it, we'll just consider, so what is the implication of this seventh day for us as Christians at the end? 
But just by way of outline, just the three points, I'm just going to follow the, the main verbs that are used here uh, that you see in these verses. You see in verses 1 and 2, the emphasis is on finishing the work of creation, that the work of creation is finished. Then uh, the next point that's emphasized there is that God rested. That's the second part of verse 2. And then lastly, that he blessed, and he blessed by essentially making the day holy. So we'll follow that outline in terms of what God has done uh, this morning. So the first point, God completes his work on the seventh day, uh, verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Notice here, the, the verse begins by saying, thus. So this is the conclusion of everything. The conclusion of everything that's been done from Genesis 1 to 1.31. Everything that happened on days 1 to 6. Now this is the concluding summary. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. Now the heavens and the earth, what does that refer to? If, if you remember when we looked at Genesis 1.1, I know it's a few weeks ago. It's really saying the entire universe. Because remember, the heavens, uh, we're talking about the, the atmosphere and the outer space, and then the earth. So we're basically talking about the entire universe. And in fact, when you look at the way it's written to, this term heavens and the earth, it's written first in Genesis 1.1, where it says God created the heavens and the earth. And now in 2 verse 1, it says the heavens and the earth were finished. So even the way it's written, uh, you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible, now, you know, previously there were no chapters, there were no verses and things like that. There's no paragraph divisions. But there, are, there were different ways in which the Hebrews, uh, the, the Israelite people at that time would make these distinctions, like, like this is one unit and this is the next break and this is the next break and things like that. Um, and one of the ways that they would do that is by repeating certain words at the start of something, at the end of something. So it kind of makes it a frame, like, okay, so this is what this bit is talking about. And so when you think about it, really, uh, in Genesis 1.1, it said God created the heavens and the earth. Now in 2.1, it says the heavens and the earth were finished. So it's sort of like bracketing or made a frame there. This is everything that happened. Everything that started, began at that creation on day one, is now getting completed. Now the word therefore, finished, uh, has the idea of completed or to be brought to a finish. And verse 2 very clearly says that it is God who finished his work that he had done. All that God wanted his creation to be has come to a fruition in the six days. Everything is complete. In fact, if you look at verses 1 to 3 uh, in chapter 2, 
You know, three times it says that God finished, or at least implies, all the work of creation. In verse 1, it says, all the hosts of them. Verse 2, all his work that he had done. Verse 3, all his work that he had done. So what does that mean? That means all the work that he had done was finished. That it was complete. That everything was exactly the way God wanted. Everything is perfect. You know, there's no loose ends to tie up. There are no issues to resolve. There's no evolution going on where God is saying, oh, you know what? That's not quite the creature I want. Oh, that's not quite the man I want it to be, and it's going to go on. No, his work is done. It is complete, and it's perfect. It is finished. Really, that's what this verse is saying. At the end of creation week, God is saying, it is finished. And I'm using that terminology intentionally because it's an echo of something else that Christ did on the cross. And notice it also says, and all the hosts of them. What is all the hosts of them? That's everything that filled those two spheres the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon and the stars to the creatures of the sea and the sky and the land and even mankind. That's all the hosts of them that are in them. So God completed this entire work. Everything is perfect and very good and everything is working in perfect harmony exactly the way God had intended his creation to be. One commentator uh, commenting on this verse says this. This one verse is sufficient to refute any theory which tries to accommodate the geological ages concept in the Genesis record of creation. Everything in the universe was still at this time exceedingly good in God's own omniscient judgment. There could have been nothing that was not good in all creation. There's no struggle for existence. There's no disease. There's no pollution. No physical calamities like earthquakes and floods, etc. No imbalance or lack of harmony. No disorder, no sin, and above all, no death. Even Satan was still good at this point. His rebellion and fall must have come later. Why? Because remember, in, in, at the end of day six, God looks at his entire creation and he says, this is very good. So there's nothing in all that God has created at this point that is bad or sinful or disorderly or anything of that sort. There's no decay, there's no death, no nothing. And everything is complete and everything is perfect. But you say, okay, so... 
why is God emphasizing this? Because he's, he, I mean, he's repeating himself, and he's, God is clearly wanting to communicate something through this. Why is it so important that we realize that God's work of creation was finished? And, and really, that finished work was very good and flawless. It's because it ultimately reflects him as perfect creator. But even more than that, so when we look around in our world and we see sickness and we see death and we see decay and we see disorder and disharmony and difficulty and pain, and, and everything else that you can think of, and earthquakes, and tsunamis, uh, and landslides, and forest fires, and, and whatever else you can think of. That is not the world that God originally created. That's not what the world looked like when God originally created the world. What God is interested in is life to the fullest. Remember? That's the blessing of God. Thriving of life. Everything working in harmony because it reflects his goodness and his order. Because he is the life-giving God. And so here's the thing. When people simply just think of, oh, okay, uh, not thinking of the big picture of also what's going on here and say, oh, you know, there could be evolution, there could be this, there could be that, uh, different ages, and so on and so forth. The one big thing that they're missing is God is trying to emphasize, no, I created a perfect creation. It reflects my perfection. And we completely miss that point of what Genesis 1, the creation week, is trying to emphasize. Nothing needed to be changed. Nothing needed to be added. Nothing needed to be evolved. It was complete and it was perfect. And God said, it's done, it's finished. Because it reflects my perfection, my goodness, my order. And really, it was a glorious day because it's not just, you know, when he's looking out, he's seeing the design of things. Yes, the design of the different creatures that he made and everything else, uh, it is absolutely fantastic and fabulous. But even more than that, the harmony now there is with all the creatures and all the different realms, everything just working together, where life is thriving and everything is pointing back to God. There's variety and there's differences, but there is perfect harmony in the life and the color and the sound and everything else that God had made. And so God completed 
his work, and that is emphasized on the seventh day. Secondly, God rested after his work on the seventh day. Look at the second part of verse 2. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, when we think of rest, you know, what comes to mind? Perhaps, oh, you know, I've had a long day at work or oh, I've just had a long week. Now, I just need to put my feet up and just, just, just relax, you know. Either, whatever that relaxation might look like. Maybe it's taking a nap, maybe it's going shopping, uh, you know, playing something, uh, whatever it is that is relaxation for you. But for God, now think about this. This is not God, okay, God in the last six days, he has created the entire universe and everything in it. Yes, it is a very big job. No human being can do that. Uh, no creature can even do that, this, this vast universe. But it's not like now at the end of the six days now, God's just broken out into a sweat and he's a bit tired and oh, you know what, I just need to rest a little bit and just get my strength back. No, that's, that's not what's happening here. Remember, this is, this is creator God, Elohim. The one who has no beginning and no end. The one who has life in himself. The one who is not dependent on anything in this world. He's the all-powerful creator. And his power is limitless. It's a power that will never get depleted. In fact, just look at a couple of uh, verses. Uh, Isaiah 40, 28, it says this. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So yeah, God doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need to rest in the sense of get his strength back somehow or get his focus back somehow. The word for rest here, it really just means to cease or to stop. That's all it means. So it could even be translated as God stopped or seized on the seventh day. But from what you say, look at the last part of verse 2, and it tells us from all his work that he had done. So he ceased working altogether. This is talking about his work in creation. All of the work that he had done in creation that nothing else is going on. God is, again, it's emphasizing, God is not trying to perfect anything or add anything. The work of creation is finished, and therefore, now God abstains from any other further work of creation. But what we need to understand is that this does not mean, therefore, that 
God just kind of stepped away from creation. Where God is, uh, you know, looking at creation and said, it is finished, my work of creation is done. Now, I'm just gonna let things be and see you later. No, that's not what God is doing here. No, God still continued and continued to then and even to this day, he continues to sustain and uphold the universe by the power of his word. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that. And if, if God ever stops sustaining this entire universe and, up to, and upholding this entire universe by the power of this world, that very second, everything would collapse. Because everything in this entire universe is still dependent on God and his sustaining power. So God ceased from creating anything else because his job at creation was done. It was perfect. And in fact, just Exodus 31, 17 also adds some more um, details to God ceasing from his work. Look at the last part of verse 17 in Exodus 31. It says, In six days the Lord made the the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So uh, he he rested and was refreshed. What does that mean? It has a sense of he was satisfied. Uh, It has a sense of enjoyment has the idea of someone delighting and celebrating in what they have finished creating. So think of, you know, uh, an artist or, um, or a carpenter or something, you know, he's created this masterpiece. Say, let's say it's a canoe. Uh, you know, has spent, uh, you know, put his effort to really reflect his work and to get it really well. This person creates this canoe. And now he just takes it out, it's on the river, he's riding it, and he's just enjoying it. Everything about it, the way it functions, uh, the way it looks, everything. Just completely enjoying it. He's satisfied. So it's that sort of idea that God enjoyed the goodness of his creation as it reflected his own glory. That he, as he enjoyed the beauty and the order of everything that he had made that he enjoyed the perfect fellowship with man um, that he had created in his image, that there was that continued fellowship with God. So God rested on the seventh day. He's supremely satisfied and delighted with his creation that he has just completed, and he's enjoying it. Now, the word for rest here It is from this word we get the closely related word, uh, which is the noun form Sabbath, or the Sabbath day as we would know it. Now some people would look at it and say, oh see, there was Sabbath even here at creation. And therefore, it is for everyone, it is mandated for us even now. Now in response to that, I would say, Well, there's no mention of any command here to observe the Sabbath rest. In fact, if you look at day seven, there's not even any mention of man on the seventh day. Because God is the focus of of creation and of this day. In fact, if you look at the rest of the book of Genesis, 
You look even after the flood, where God has essentially erased everything that he has made to, to a degree, and he starts afresh with Noah and his family and, and the creation that was there in the ark. And when they come out of the ark, God commands Noah and tells Noah exactly the same thing that he told Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over all the creation. But even over there, there is no command, there is no law to observe the Sabbath day and rest. Then you go to Abraham, you go to Isaac, you go to Jacob, you go to Joseph, There are no laws, no mandates given to observe a Sabbath rest. Nothing at all in the book of Genesis. It's not until we get to the next book, that is the book of Exodus, that a law is instituted. And we'll look at that further in our next point. But what we can say, though, is this that all of human life is now patterned after this creation week. Remember, a few weeks ago, we saw how many of the things that we observe in our calendars, the days, the years, the, the months even, is based on the movement of different celestial bodies. The day is based on the sun and the moon, the movements of that. That's, that's how you get your 24-hour day. The, the moon is based on the faces of the moon. And so you get your month. The, uh, the year is based on the constellation and even the, the movement of the sun. Well, really, it's the movement of the earth around the sun, and that makes up one year. But the week, on the other hand, there is nothing in the sky that will make man say, oh, okay, seven days, that, that's going to be a week. Nothing in the sky that says five days or eight days or whatever. Uh, But everyone follows this seven-day week because this was God's established pattern at creation. And so what we can say is this, this creation week, it establishes a pattern of man's work cycle where you know, man works for most of the week and there's rest at the end of it. And it does us good when we, when we have that rest at the end of the week. But aside from that, there is no command, there is no mandate given to human beings to observe the Sabbath at this point. What we can see in this verse is God having completed his work of creation. He ceased from that work and enjoyed and delighted in his very good creation, which was without decay, without disease, without death, without sin. It was just full of life and his blessings. And again, this is emphasizing that what God created was perfect and complete. But all the troubles in this world that we see That comes in Genesis 3 because of man's rebellion. When man sins and the world is cursed and the effects of sin begin to bear in this world. And that's what we see today. But that's not what God originally created. So God completed his work. He rested after his work. And thirdly, God made the made holy the seventh day, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day 
and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, what, one other thing that you will see that's different here is that when God blessed previously, when he blessed his living creatures, and even when he blessed man, God blesses them by speaking. He blesses them and he says something. What you see here is, now God blesses the actual day. He's not blessing creatures per se, but he's actually blessing the actual day And how does he bless it? Not by speaking, but by making it holy. Now, this is the first time in the Bible the term to make holy appears, and and so it's very significant. Because the, the theology of holiness then slowly gets developed in the rest of the Bible. This term to make holy can also be translated to sanctify, to consecrate. To, to halo, it all means the same thing. It literally means to, to cut off or to separate. So think of, um, I think it was one of my professors who used this analogy, and it's always stuck in my head. Simple analogy, but great way to remember this aspect of holiness and at the very um, core of it, of what it means that it's cut off or to separate. Just take a birthday cake, and let's say a piece of that birthday cake is cut off and then put to the side for, uh, for somebody in the family who is perhaps not there so that that person can get that birthday cake. So there we would say, oh, this thing is set apart. It is cut off. It is separated from this whole thing. It is consecrated. So it's that sort of idea, to, to separate, to consecrate, to make holy. It all means the same thing. And later on we will see, you know, God makes holy the, the festivals. God makes holy utensils in the tabernacle. Uh, and so on and so forth. And then later on we see that God himself calls himself holy. Or in other words, he is separate or other than everything else. He is so distinct, so separate from everything else. And later, we'll also see in Scripture where it says, for because I am holy, you, my people, will also be holy. That you will be separate from everything else. You will be distinct just like me, and you will reflect me. Whether it's righteousness, whether it's justice, whether it's love, mercy, all of that. So it's the beginning stages of that where you see here what God is doing. He In Genesis 2-3, he makes holy or sanctifies or sets apart for himself day 7. This was a day that was specially devoted to God. And you say, why? Well, look at the last part of verse 2. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Because this was the day that God, having completed all his created work, God rested and enjoyed his perfect, flawless creation. It was the most special day for God. What a beautiful day it would have been, just looking at the world around. 
And this was the end of the creation week. But what you'll notice is, even the usual refrain after each day, and there was evening, and there was morning, you know, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, we saw that for all those six days, and yet we don't find that refrain on the seventh day. It's not here. You say, why? Now, this doesn't mean, you know, some look at this and say, oh, see, you know, there's no, there was evening and morning, and therefore now it's referring to an age, and then they read it back to all the uh, other days as well, so everything is an age, and so billions of years come in, and so on and so forth. No, this is also another literal 24-hour period day. You know, it, it, it's the, the, the work week we saw even a few weeks ago, the work week of Israel was patterned after this creation week. Six days of work and one day of rest. So this is also a literal 24-hour period, and that cycle was started on day one, and it would continue to go on. But the fact that this refrain, you know, there was evening and there was morning, is missing, it suggests that whatever has happened on this day, it is supposed to be continual. That even though there would be subsequent 24-hour days, every day from this day on was supposed to be like this seventh day. The reason God set this day apart for himself is the whole purpose of creation. Let me say that again. The reason that God set this day apart for himself is the whole purpose of creation, which is the rest of God. See, God had entered into his rest, seizing from creating and enjoying all of his creation, and it was meant to be perfect. And all of his creation was meant to participate in this state of eternal rest and experience a perfect world with all its blessings and ultimately enjoy God forever and glorify him. That's why the last day was set apart, because this was the very purpose of creation. This is what creation should have been eternally and perpetually, and what it should have been doing. That everything would be in the state of rest of God and they would enjoy the blessings of God and enjoy God ultimately and give glory to Him. That was the very purpose of creation. That's why God set this day apart so that this day would continue on like every day. Everything would have been a joy to do for mankind. Even work, unlike how difficult and tiring it can be now. Even just, uh, you know, being in the home and being with children or just other, other ways too where we just do things and we get tired. Work in that state of eternal rest would have been an absolute joy. You didn't get tired. You didn't get to experience sin and the effects of the curse in this world. 
The only thing you would experience was the full blessing of God and his perfect creation as you worked and served God. So even work in the state of perpetual rest would have been an absolute joy and it would bring glory to God and he would be enjoyed in this way. And God would enjoy himself looking at his creation this way. But this state of perpetual rest that all creation was made for was cut short when man sinned. And sin entered, and decay, and death, and pain, and suffering, and everything else came into this world. In fact, as we go through the seven-day week cycle, the, the seven-day week cycle of work and rest, it's really rehearsing the story of creation week week after week after week. It's repeating it over and over and over again what happened at creation. Like a broken gramophone record. Where there's work, 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 and everything is supposed to enter this rest, but it gets cut short. And then the work starts again. And it's work, 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 and there's a little glimpse of rest, and then work, 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 work. It's like this broken gramophone record going all over everywhere in the world. That this rest that creation was created for never comes. Now the question that we might ask is what's the significance of the seventh day for us as Christians even now? I mean, are are we supposed to rest on the seventh day and keep the Jewish Sabbath like they kept it? Now, as I said, there there is no command given at creation, and for that matter, to anyone in the entire book of Genesis to, to rest on the seventh day and observe the Jewish Sabbath. You won't find it anywhere in the book of Genesis. But when we come to Exodus and Deuteronomy, there's a specific command given to observe the Sabbath but this is not given to everyone. It is a command that is specifically given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Look at Exodus 31, 12 to 17. Exodus 31, 12 to 17. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Six days shall work be done, and the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant, for, as a covenant forever. 
It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So notice here a few things. The Sabbath was a command specifically given to the nation of Israel. And it was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, the the covenant that was mediated through Moses to the nation of Israel. And the purpose of observing the Sabbath was, as verse 13 says, so that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So in the same way, God took the seventh day and sanctified it for himself, or set it apart for himself, or made it holy for himself, separated it from the rest of it for himself. When the people of Israel, when they cease from working and observe the Sabbath at the end of the week and serve the Lord, it served as a sign that they are set apart by God. That they were different from the nations around them. That none of the other nations had this kind of uh, Sabbath rest at the end of the seventh day. Or on the seventh day, rather, every seven days. And, And this Sabbath rest was a reminder to the people of Israel that their God was the creator and the sustainer of the universe. That he created this world and he continues to sustain this world. But there's another purpose given for the Israelites to observe the Sabbath, and this you'll find in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you." You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So over here, there's another purpose given. Just like God rested after six days of work in creation, when the Israelites observed a day of Sabbath, they were to remember how God delivered them from the slave labor and the tyranny of Egypt. How God redeemed them from that kind of uh, tyrannical labor and has now given them a life of rest. How God redeemed them and have given them rest. So the Sabbath was a time for the Israelites to cease from work and to remember the Lord as their creator and their sustainer and as their redeemer. And in some sense, it was also pointing to the fact that that someday, as they kept going on like a broken cycle, broken gramophone record, 
that someday God would bring them into this eternal rest. So again, are Christians commanded to observe the Jewish Sabbath? The answer is no. It was a law that was specifically given to the Israelites in the Old Testament. But speaking about Sabbath, there's a couple of things that I want you to see from the New Testament. Turn to Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It says there, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, I know it's been a while since we've uh, you know, studied the book of Colossians. It was almost two years ago. But just to refresh your memory, what was happening in the Colossian church was there were false teachers that were creeping in, and the, the word there for don't let anyone pass judgment, it's more the idea of condemning. So these false teachers were coming in and condemning those within the church and saying, oh, you know, your life started with Jesus. That's great, wonderful. But for you to really grow and get closer to God and become more spiritual, what you need to do is observe the Israelite dietary laws and observe some of their festivities, those those laws and uh, things related to Sabbath as well as other festivities. You need to observe that as well to really grow and become spiritual. You may have started with Jesus, but to really uh, become spiritual and grow in your spirituality, this is what you need to do. That you are to observe these Old Testament laws. But what's Paul's point here? No, they're, they're all shadows. That Jesus is the substance that it was all pointing to. And now that the substance has come, Jesus who has fulfilled the Old Testament law has come, you don't need to follow those laws. Jesus has fulfilled the law. So don't hold on to the the shadows when the real substance is there. Now that Jesus has come. Now I I just looked at my notes from when I preached from Colossians. uh, the, The analogy that I used to explain this was Imagine, you know, um, the father has been away uh, on work somewhere and he has returned back to his home and he knocks on the door. And he opens the door, the children and his wife see him, but then they look at his shadow and they go and hug his shadow. That is essentially what Paul is saying. Stop holding on to these shadows. The real substance has come that it pointed to. Jesus has come. He's all you need. He's all sufficient. He has fulfilled the law. You don't need to hold on to those shadows, all those Old Testament laws. Now, some people will say that the Jewish Sabbath, which is always a Saturday, was uh, switched to Sunday, the Lord's Day, for the Christian. But there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that the Jewish Sabbath day was changed to the Lord's Day 
for the Christian. In fact, Apostle Paul, speaking about Christian liberties, tells us in Romans 14, 5 and 6, that the day we worship is not important to the Lord. Look at uh, Romans 14, 5 and 6. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats and eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the, uh, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Yes, we are called to corporately worship God. That is clearly commanded in Scripture. But the day that we are to corporately worship God is not commanded in Scripture. That's why in some places like the Middle East, Christians gather for corporate worship on a Friday because Friday is the weekend there. Some places people have corporate worship on a Saturday. Now, yes, the first day of the week was the day Jesus rose from the dead and the early church gathered for corporate worship on that first day of the week. So that's why we gather on Saturday trying to, uh, pardon me, uh, we gather on Sunday to follow that same pattern. But there's no command in Scripture with regards to that, and there's liberties given. And there's nothing in Scripture that says the Sabbath day that was on Saturday became the Lord's day on Sunday for the Christian, and we must do that. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. Now, here's the thing. Even though all of creation was, the purpose of making creation was to be in that eternal rest with God, enjoying the blessings of God and enjoying God himself and God being in full communion with all that. And sin came and, and it got cut short. The offer of eternal rest is still available. It's not completely gone. Just turn to Hebrews 4, 8, to 10. When you have time, read through all of uh, Hebrews, or at least the passage, the entire passage that we read this morning. But I'll just read verses 8 through 10 of Hebrews 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as as God did from his. See, the people of the, the point that is being made by the author of Hebrews is this. The people of Israel, after they were freed from Egypt, sure, they kept the Sabbath, but they didn't trust in God. They didn't obey Him. They rebelled against Him. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 days, and the whole generation died during that time. And God says, you will not enter my rest. Then the new generation of Israelites under Joshua came and conquered the promised land. And they enjoyed a period of rest 
from enemies and the, you know, the land was fruitful and it was wonderful. But even that, it, it was temporary. It was only just for a short while. It didn't last for all of eternity. Even King David's time, they, they enjoyed this kind of rest. But again, this was also temporary because ultimately this was all only a shadow of what was to come of this eternal rest that God intended right from the beginning. You see, God rested on the seventh day. But you know, rested on the seventh day, he stopped creating and stopped making. You know when that word make again begins to appear? in chapter three of Genesis, when God made the skin coverings of animals to cover Adam and Eve when they sinned. You see, he started then his work of redemption right there. And as we go through the pages of scripture, we see this, God keeps his promise and he finishes that work. That in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was promised through the prophets, who the Old Testament laws pointed to, all the sacrificial systems, all the festivals, and all that pointed to. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, the son of God, came into this world in the person of a human being. He came to this sin-cursed world, and then he died on the cross, paying the price for the sin of his creatures, of people like you and me. And what did he say on that cross? He cries out, it is finished. See, Jesus dying on that cross said, it's complete, my work of redemption is done. And he rose up on the third day to prove that. And so how is anyone able to enter this rest then? Because Jesus then, uh, in Matthew 11 we read, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Enter into my rest. By trusting in Jesus Christ. And that's the point that is being made here even in Hebrews 4. Maybe there's somebody here, you know, you, you're, you're coming to church and that's your tick box for I'm a Christian or I'm saved. Maybe you're trying to be religious and trying to pray, trying to do this or whatever else. And it's, in fact, becoming more burdensome from you than a joy. Let me tell you how, how you are saved and how you have this relationship with God is not by doing all those things. It's by trusting in Jesus alone and his work. That he rested and he said, it is all done. And we put our trust in that. And we rest from our labors of trying to prove to God or to be accepted by God. For the Christian, and I'll close with this. 
we have entered into this rest. But like with a lot of other things, it's a present reality and also a future reality. It's an already and a not yet. We enjoy some benefits of this rest. We're no longer striving to be accepted before God. We know we're accepted before God because of Christ. And so we should be the envy of the rest of the world who do not believe in God because we are the most restful people, the most joyful people, the most content people because we're not trying to perform. We're not trying to save ourselves. That's been done by our God and we can rest in Him. But one day, Christ will return and He will reign. And there's a whole other dimension to this rest that we will see. And when there will be no more sin and no more suffering and no more decay, no more pain, no more nothing, and we will truly enter his rest, experiencing the full blessedness of life, of a life shared with God, where we are communing with him perfectly, and God is enjoyed, and he is ultimately glorified. I pray, Christian, that you would be as you live even this week and perhaps these coming weeks too, that you would remember that, that you have already entered into this rest. You have, you know, the purpose for which you were created, God is already restoring that for you. And that you would take the time to thank God for that and continue to walk in his ways, not be distracted by the things of this world, but also look at the people who are so heavy laden and so burdened and tell them about this rest that God offers because that is the very purpose for which God made all of his creation, including every man and woman. And until they enter that rest, they will never be satisfied. Let's pray to him. Father, we are thankful for the great God you are. We are thankful that you created us in your image. We're thankful that even when we lost our way, that you brought us back through your precious son and his death on the cross on our behalf so that we could enter this rest that we have been created for. And ultimately, in a fuller sense, we will enter into that rest. Oh, Father, thank you so much for this. Help us to live in this reality and not this current reality of the brokenness of this world, but the realities that are true of us, of what you have done already, spiritually speaking. And Father, we pray that this would cause us to give a greater zeal for you, to live for you, and even to tell others about you. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. Help us to love you more, even as we continue to go through this uh, creation account. Help us to know more truths about you. We thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.